0: Welcome to Undruggable, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientist's Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, which is a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. While breakthrough discoveries in drug development have been made through the years, 85% of disease targets are still considered undruggable. Ray DeShays, a senior vice president at Amgen, believes that the fourth wave of drug innovation is here, led by a new type of multi-specific medicines that will radically alter our concept of how drugs can work and pave the way for new solutions.
1: Induced proximity makes it possible for scientists to attack undruggable targets by designing medicines that go beyond what conventional drugs can accomplish. Within the next decade, this work can yield new options for treatments for cancer and other diseases that currently have poor prognoses. People whose serious diseases don't respond to conventional medicines or who run out of options may see induced proximity drugs come to the rescue. In this episode, I'm joined by David Reese, Executive Vice President of R&D at Amgen. Dave is responsible for Amgen's entire pipeline of potential therapies, and he has had a long-standing interest in oncology, both at Amgen and in his pre-Amgen career in academic research and medical practice. Dave, it's really terrific to have you here today, both because of your experience as an oncologist over many years, as well as the perch you occupy at the apex of a huge research and development organization. Where I'd like to start is going back to your past. Before coming to Amgen, you were on the faculty at the School of Medicine at UCLA. You were working closely with oncogenes and, therapies for cancer and so forth. Describe what that experience was like and some of the things you learned and that really motivate you and inform you in the current job that you have.
2: My experience before coming to Amgen was what we would call a translational oncologist, someone who's working at the interface of the laboratory and the clinic. And for me, it was a focus on getting new medicines into the clinic to try to treat what were in many cases untreatable cancers. That experience for me put the patient and patient's families front and center. The simplest task of a physician is to alleviate human suffering. And all doctors have patients that they carry with them. For an oncologist, it's usually the patients that you've lost that you really remember and you wonder how we could have had a different outcome. One patient in particular has always stayed with me and has been a guiding light in my career. A young man, he had a wife and a young daughter, had an advanced form of a solid tumor. We had tried numerous experimental therapies after conventional treatments, failed, uh, but nothing worked, and he passed away from the disease. His wife, of course, was devastated. And in her grief, she turned and looked at me and said, Dr. Reese, can't you do any better than this? That has always stayed
1: with me. How do we do better? That had to be a pretty intense moment. How did you feel in that moment? How did you respond to her right when that happened?
2: Oh, it was a gut punch because she was right. We needed to do better. Everything we had tried had failed to save this young man. uh, And that was one of the moments that really crystallized for me. This is what I want to do. I want to try to figure out new ways to treat these untreatable diseases. Whenever I feel a little frustrated, it always occurs to me that that frustration is nothing
1: compared to what our patients and their families face. When you were at UCLA, you worked very closely with Dennis Slayman, who was involved in the early days of the discovery and testing of trastuzumab, which went on to become Herceptin, a drug used today to treat certain metastatic breast cancers. You also overlapped with Charles Sawyers, who was involved in the early days of clinical testing of Imatinib, which went on to become Gleevec, a landmark drug for the treatment of chronic myelogenous leukemia. Those two drugs were early triumphs of molecular medicine. Were you keenly aware of these developments, and did they have an impact on how you thought about cancer and its treatment?
2: Oh, absolutely. I was fortunate to play a very tiny role in the Perceptin preclinical and clinical development programs. Charles Sawyers was working on I I, in the laboratory next door and became a good friend that experience showed that you could go from a basic understanding of the biology of that cancer cell and what was driving it to a rationally designed treatment that profoundly affected outcomes for patients. So that proof of principle and its importance really can't be overstated. And for me, it then became a roadmap for how you develop drugs not just in oncology, but across diseases where molecular medicine
1: is now starting to make inroads. The war on cancer initiated 50 years ago, aside from scattered cancers here and there. Why have the really major cancers that afflict human populations not been cured? Cancer is a fiendishly complex
2: disease on a molecular level. Every tumor cell carries multiple alterations or mutations in pathways that involve genes that drive that cancer cell to grow and divide other genes that are essentially the molecular brakes on a cancer cell and they're lost. So you've got one foot on the accelerator and you've lost the brakes in a cancer cell they've evolved other mechanisms to evade the immune system. Any cancer cell has a complex of these alterations together that create a very complicated dynamic, and it means that in most instances, there won't be a magic bullet. It will be very hard to have a precise single treatment that attacks the cancer cell because of this complex collection of alterations, you're going to need combination therapy or multiple treatments given either at once or in sequence. So it's this fiendishly complex molecular wiring in the tumor cell that has made it a challenge. Now, the good news is what that half-century war on cancer has produced is a good understanding of what that molecular wiring is in many cancer cells. And the task for this generation and the next generation is to take that understanding and to translate it into new treatments.
1: So on top of the complexity, there can be tremendous heterogeneity at the level of the cancer in an individual patient. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why that creates a special challenge?
2: Cancer cells are basically undergoing a speeded-up form of evolution within the body that may be in response to treatments, it may be just occurring naturally. As they're rapidly growing and dividing, they can acquire different mutations and different tumor cells within the body can evolve to have different collections of these mutations. We call each one of those a clone. And so that tumor may have multiple clones. So if you want to completely eradicate the tumor,
1: ultimately you will have to target each one of those clones. We also know that tumors have to divide. Why isn't it as simple as, I'm just gonna throw a poison on the cancer cells that stops them from dividing? It seems like that would be a simple strategy. Why doesn't that work?
2: been doing that for now three quarters of a century since the birth of modern chemotherapy. Many chemotherapies work by damaging the DNA in a cancer cell, ultimately preventing that sort of cell division. Now, the problem with most of these therapies is that they are not specific. They don't just pick out the cancer cell, but they also target Other cells in the body that are also frequently dividing, cells in your bone marrow, cells that line your intestine. That's what's responsible for many of the side effects of chemotherapy. In addition, cancer cells have very quickly evolved ways to uh, get around the effects of chemotherapy. There are various resistance mechanisms. They can pump the chemotherapy drug out of the cell, they can figure out ways to simply ignore what that chemotherapy drug is doing on a molecular level. So that is an approach that may form a component of therapy, but in many instances would not be sufficient in and of itself to completely control a tumor.
1: You just described cancer as akin to a car where the gas pedal is jammed on and the brakes aren't working. People have been sequencing tumors in normal tissues adjacent to the tumors to compile the genetic changes that accumulate in the tumor cells in order to try to understand them. The assumption is that those genetic changes must underlie the tumor's ability to continue growing and eventually metastasize. Colorectal cancer, in particular, has been studied for many years by Bert Vogelstein's group at Johns Hopkins Medicine. They discovered that in a significant fraction of people with colorectal cancer... They're missing a break known as APC. And when that break is missing, it essentially leads to continuous activation of this accelerator, this gas pedal known as beta catenin. So, why wouldn't treating this particular cancer be as simple as saying that beta catenin is the bad guy? Because the break that normally governs it is missing. Just take out that bad guy.
2: We have pretty deep insights now that are leading us to therapies that can address the sort of challenges that you're outlining, Ray. Beta-catenin is one. Another gene was P53, which has been called the guardian of the genome. One of the things that P53 does is it scans your DNA to detect damage. And if it detects damage, it then calls into play a complex machinery inside the cell To repair that damage? Well, you can imagine that in a cancer cell that has lost p53, the DNA is now unstable. The guardian is gone, the repair mechanisms are not being invoked, and that DNA is then prone to more mutations, some of which will help give rise to aggressive behavior of that tumor cell. So, what you want to do is restore the function of that lost p53 but that's a real challenge because you have to get a normal copy of this gene into the right cells, get it turned on, and get it interacting in the right way to carry out its normal function. I view the replacement of these lost tumor suppressor genes as a real challenge with delivery mechanisms improving, our ability to deliver nucleic acid based therapeutics, so RNAs uh, or DNAs, this will begin to change. So, tumor suppressor genes, huge category where we've made little inroads. I think we're on the precipice of making real progress there. Another big class of genes that is altered in tumors are transcription factors. These are proteins that sit as part of a complex and regulate when genes are turned on and off. When transcription factors are altered in tumors, they lead to certain genes, for example, being turned on all the time, and that drives the proliferation, the growth and division of those cells. So how do we drug a transcription factor? How do we get the right copy into a cell and then get it interacting as part of this complicated
1: machinery. It's interesting that you specifically call out transcription factors because of beta-catenin fits in that class. There is a recent story of success in targeting a transcription factor, albeit it was not done prospectively. It was figured out retrospectively. You want to tell us a little bit about that and how that discovery might be more broadly enabling for future therapies? There's a class of
2: drugs called IMIDS, and what they do is bind to a target, put a a label on it, and what that label says is, I'm a protein that should be degraded. I should be sent to the garbage bin in a cell, and then that target is degraded. Now, In some cancers, if you have a protein that's helping to drive the activity of that cancer cell, you want to target it for destruction. These drugs were introduced actually a couple decades ago in diseases like multiple myeloma and others were found to be important, but it wasn't until many years later that we understood how they actually work. This would be an example of induced proximity. You are binding to that protein target with one part of a drug, and then you're bringing this labeling machinery into play, inducing its proximity to that target so that it's labeled and degraded. So this opens up a universe of possibilities to go after targets that were previously
1: considered undruggable. So this induced proximity calls to mind for me a strategy that we've been pursuing in cancer for a number of years now, but instead of going after proteins inside the cell, we're actually going after the cancer cells themselves with the immune system. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that works and what your thoughts are on where that's going? What you're talking about are bispecific
2: molecules that engage the immune system. One part of the bispecific binds to a receptor or another target on the surface of a cancer cell. The second part of the bispecific binds to a T-cell. T-cells are the most potent assassins uh, or cell-killing cells within the immune system. The bispecific brings that T-cell in close proximity to the tumor cell, which leads to the activation of the T-cell. The T-cell then kills that Tumor cell. This is a a classic example of induced proximity. There are a host of these approaches that engage the T cell and activate it against tumor cells. There are approaches now that look at natural killer cells, which are a sort of a primitive immune system cell whose normal job is to patrol the body, recognize uh, anything that's foreign, gobble it up. And in this case, you can use a bispecific molecule to grab that natural killer cell, get it to recognize a cancer cell, and attack it. So a huge area involving the immune system as the effector or business side of the induced proximity approach, and then the tumor cell itself as the target.
1: There's other approaches that people are taking that fall under the general umbrella of induced proximity. One being antibody drug conjugates, where you're bringing a drug close to a cancer cell to attack it. Another would be, say, to take a a bioactive peptide. It could be a cytokine or something of that nature. And again, bringing it close to a T cell in a cancer cell, inducing proximity of a molecular species. What are your thoughts on how those are likely to develop over the next several years,
2: I think we're going to see an explosion of such approaches, and you're only limited by your imagination here because you know, when you think about induced proximity, you're trying to take different building blocks and put them together to create new biology to act on the cancer cell, but it could be any other diseases as well, autoimmune diseases. For example, where we have overactive T cells, we may want to try to target and eliminate the bad T cells using other parts of the immune system. What all of this says is that for these new approaches to work, what you need are a huge number of building blocks. The more building blocks you've got, the easier it's going to be to find the right portion of a building block that attaches to your target and the right portion that attaches to the effector. There are a number of technologies coming forward that really help us generate these sorts of building blocks. Uh, For example, there's DNA-encoded libraries. What DNA-encoded libraries do is they take fragments, at some point tens of billions of fragments, they label them with a DNA barcode. We can then quickly start to screen those fragments for the activity that we want. If one of them has it, we use the DNA barcode to identify it, and then we refine the development of that building block. And so building on these sorts of technological advances, it's gonna give us the vast array of potential building blocks that we need to put together these sorts of complicated molecules.
1: At the risk of coining a new word, I'll say this is like the Legoification of biology, where you have your red block, your yellow block, and your blue block. and they all have different shapes, and you can put them together in different ways to make different types of structures that can do different things. This summer, Amgen announced the acquisition of TennioBio, a clinical stage biotechnology company. That has developed novel technology for generating building blocks to make multi specific biologic drugs. Is this idea of leveraging their technology to generate building blocks part of the rationale for that acquisition? TeneoBio has a technology that produces fragments of antibodies in
2: very large quantity with a huge diversity among those fragments, and those can be used as the building blocks for the kind of complex. Multi specific molecules that we're talking about here. Thinking about this as a giant Lego set is a very good way to conceptualize what we're trying to do. Imagine you're trying to make a complicated structure with a Lego set and you have four blocks. That's hard. It's going to be a lot easier if you have four billion blocks
1: to choose from to create that complex structure. What's your opinion on some of the real big picture problems? That are facing our industry. Maybe you can enumerate two or three of the biggest challenges that we're facing in delivering the therapies that patients are desperately waiting for.
2: On a technical level, there are really two existential challenges that any research and development organization devoted to drug discovery and development faces right now. The first is improving the success rates about 8% of all drugs that go into clinical testing in humans actually make it across the finish line. They're approved by the FDA or other regulatory authorities, and they reach patients. So 92% fail. We must do better on, at, at that particular challenge. And I think there are ways we, we absolutely will do better using genetics, for example, to understand diseases at a very fundamental level, using the biologic advances that we've discussed today before we start designing those drugs. The second one is reducing what we call the cycle time. It takes, on average, 12 to 14 years for a drug to go from idea in the laboratory to actually being approved and available to patients. That is you know, something that we should seek to cut in half uh, or to a third of the current rate. Patients are waiting, patients with serious diseases all around the world. The pandemic, I think, has showed us in some ways what can be done. Look at the development of the mRNA vaccines in basically a year. Now, there was two decades of science that was preparation for that, but that shows us what the edge of achievability is, and that's what we should really be striving for every day. And then finally, there are challenges that I would call societal. The most elegant drug in the world is of no use if it's not getting to the right patients. In other words, patients have to have access. So that's something I think we have to think about from day one in research and development. How are we going to design a drug that the broadest swath of patients can have access to. And not only a broad swath of patients, but patients that represent the diversity of the disease. How do we study the drug in patient populations, wherever they are in the world? This is an area where we're making some progress, but I think we need to do much better.
1: So are you optimistic that we're going to be able to tackle and solve those challenges going forward?
2: I'm incredibly optimistic. I recently finished a book uh, about Renaissance Italy and the explosion of art, architecture, mathematics, the beginnings of what we would consider modern science. I think we're at that sort of hinge moment in our business. What's driving that? First of all, it's being propelled by technologic Change, fundamental advances in our understanding of the biology of human disease. But now that's being coupled with tech, big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning being brought to bear across an entire swath of data from genetics, clinical data, real world evidence, the evidence of a drug that exists in medical records or other repositories. All of that is human data, and this is going to be the century of human data. Integrating all of that with techniques that are coming from Silicon Valley, putting that together with biology is what will propel our efforts against human disease. What we saw in the pandemic was a much more rapid virtualization of the clinical trials that we do. So typically, if a patient enrolls in a clinical trial, they have to go to a site where there's a qualified investigator, they have to make routine visits, they have to have all the testing in the clinical trial done there. That's where they pick up the experimental drug. Well, the pandemic made that impossible for many patients participating in studies. And so we figured out how to use telemedicine, how to ship the experimental drug directly to the patient. So we're creating a virtual clinical trial. That's a model that I think will lead us forward to bring the clinical study to the patient, wherever they are. That will not only allow us to target the right patients, but it will lead to what I would call the democratization of clinical trials because that gives us a chance to reach many patients who otherwise can't participate.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. It was very inspirational to hear your vision for where things are going, both on the micro level within research and development, and also on the broader level of the entire industry and the medical profession and treatment of disease.
2: Well, thanks, Ray. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today, and I look forward to working with you to develop multi-specifics and a host of drugs that really have an impact on human disease.
0: Thank you for listening to the final episode of Undruggable. Thanks again to David Reese, Executive Vice President of Research and Development at Amgen. For more on cutting-edge research, follow The scientists on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist's Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements, other than statements of historical fact, are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.